Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm. I'm joined by Danny Crichton. Danny, say hello. Hello. Natasha Mascarenas, say hello. Hi, guys. I am rushing because this is an equity shot and we have so much to get through. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon. You're going to hear this Tuesday night. This is in response to Monday in which we were attacked by a swarm of S1 filings. So this is the IPO themed episode. Guys, it was nuts. It was, it felt like they were just dropped. Every time we kind of got one figured out, another one would land on us. I do not recall a day in my life ever quite like that as a financial reporter. I mean, Danny, have you ever seen a swarm like that? Not in our industry. Then again, we haven't seen any liquidity in general in our industry. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the unicorn of, of IPOs has now turned into a, a fleet of horses. I, I thought it was kind of amazing that it was happening during Demo Day because it felt like this really like poetic moment of the pre-seed and seed and Series A and then all these exit events. And I was like, I feel Sequoia just like cackling in the background. And it, it just felt like a moment that we had to meme. It was like a college graduation next to a kindergarten's first day. You know, it was this weird, weird mix. But Natasha, you and I were covering the the demo day and then had to kind of like pivot, it felt like, to this other other world. I put a shocking day. Anyways, enough throat clearing. There were IPO filings. Well, last Friday, Mr. Danny Crichton broke a bunch of news about the Palantir S1 filing that hasn't dropped yet. We'll start with that in a second. Uh, yesterday was Unity, Asana, JFrog, Snowflake, and Sumo Logic, and then also in the background was Corsair Gaming and Xpeng, which is a Chinese EV company. So big drop yesterday, a lot to get through. Danny, starting with the Palantir, just because it's important to get that out of the way, we all expected an S1 on Friday. You broke a bunch of news about their IPO filing, then no IPO filing dropped. Are you to blame, sir, for the fact that I do not have a public (laughs) Palantir filing? No, I, I don't think so. We, we do still have a draft copy of the S1. What's, what's nuts is it still hasn't come, though. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we received this on Friday. It's now Tuesday night. As of this second that we're recording, Palantir hasn't filed. And, and perhaps part of the reason is, is there's just not a lot of great news in the dock. And maybe they're just sort of testing the waters. So let's get into some of the numbers. You know, so 2018 revenue is $595 million. Okay, that seems okay. Remember, this is a 17-year-old company who was founded in 2003. So, you know, 600 million in top-line revenue, not bad. The, the problem starts with the fact that the loss for the same period of time was roughly the same, which was a loss of $580 million. And so for every dollar in revenue that Palantir made last year, it lost two bucks uh, the other direction. Spent two bucks, right? Spent two bucks. And then in 2019, did things get better? Was there a, did it perk up like a like a coffee, or was it more like a like a decaf diet coke and went flat? It was more like a a, a juicero machine. It's ju- juicero, I believe. A juicero. Oh my uh, God. Uh, there you go. The, the positive side is again almost a two decade old company. Revenue growth 25 percent up to 742 million. They they managed to keep the loss in line. So the the loss was only 580 million bucks. So the the net loss percentage actually shrunk to negative 78 percent. And, and the good news is, is that, you know, we, we've been tracking the story for a long time about whether Palantir is becoming a commercial company. In 2018, it was actually ahead. It actually had more revenues from the commerce side than from the government contracting side. 
Um, the downside is, is maybe because of coronavirus or maybe because of other dynamics going on in the world, the government side of the business grew tremendously over the last year. The downside is, is the commerce business did not. And so government is actually retaking the lead for Palantir. It's now representing 53.5% of all revenue compared to obviously the balance being commerce. And what was interesting also is that it actually produced only 40% of its revenue in, domestically in the United States with the other 60% international. So, I mean, there, there's stuff to like, there's stuff obviously not to like. What's shocking though, it's a 17-year-old company, right? And I, I keep bringing this up because I think we're going to see with Snowflake and some of these others, there are companies that are, you know, in some cases, a third to a half of the period of time of growth are in a much better fiscal position than Palantir. Just a disappointment so far is my read of this. And that's why I was kind of joking. Did you ruin it? Because did you drop? And then everyone was like, oh, it's not very good. Maybe we'll keep it to ourselves. And I also think that with Palantir, they were, they've been teasing out this $1 billion revenue number for a couple of news cycles. And so seeing it not hit that or not come super close to that is what I think made it a little bit more of a flatter response and reaction. And then I also wanted to talk a little bit about one of the points that Danny made about you know, we knew that Palantir had this two-pronged business of both government and commercial. And I think they wanted to distance themselves from the government narrative a bit, but they landed a huge Navy contract. The numbers show that it's still making up a bulk of their revenue. It was a cool moment to see like what a business wants to be framed as versus what it actually is making money from. It's like the best part of an S1. Well, and, and unlike some of the companies we're going to talk about, the, the, the revenue concentration with this company is extreme. The company only has 125 customers and customers from the same, say, government department that are separate agencies count as separate accounts, right? So if it's the, the example from the, the S1 draft copy that we leaked said that, you know, if you were in the CDC and the National Institutes of Health, this counts as separate agencies, despite the fact they're both part of the Department of Health and Human Services. What's nuts is that the company's top three customers represent 28% of the revenues last year. And the top 20 customers represented two thirds of all revenues. And so, you know, to me, like from a business model perspective, I mean, this, this honestly is why it never went public. I mean, this is why it has remained a private company for so long. I'm actually really curious why now. I mean, I read this and I saw nothing in it other than they were able to downgrade kind of the expenses over the last six months, the first six months of this year. They were able to massively cut back on expenses this year. Uh, in, in the first six months of 2020, they were massively able to cut back on, on uh, sales and marketing costs, on R&D, on uh, SG&A. And so, you know, again, the margin improved dramatically as they were kind of going to IPO. But fundamentally, this is not a strong business in my view. I was just going to ask, like, and I'm sure we've talked about it before, but truly what does Palantir benefit from raising a ton of money when it goes public? I don't, I don't know what it would be used for. And this is like an earnest question, but true question I have. I mean, the problem with Palantir is that it's still shockingly unprofitable. I mean, we think, I think we think a lot about growth companies in Silicon Valley as capital to fuel growth. Well, Palantir isn't growing that much and it's still enormously unprofitable. I haven't seen the cash flow statistics. I don't know offhand what its operating cash burn was in say H1 2020, but it can't have been fantastic, you know? And so that's expensive. And so public offerings are a way to, at least in theory, raise. Now, there's one more part to this I want to talk about besides the business model, and, and this is unique to Palantir. So most of these IPOs in terms of the, the voting and the shares that uh, Wall Street investors are going to buy get fairly consistent these days. There's a 10-vote a share and a one-vote share. Founders get 10-vote shares. They retain control of the company, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's actually become very normal over the last decade in the tech industry. What's interesting with Palantir is it's going to have three classes of shares, one share that has one vote per share a class of shares that has 10 votes per share, and then a special class F 
for founder shares that will actually in perpetuity own 49.9999969 seven nines if you include the nine in the earlier nine um so six ninths after the decimal it's very complicated um but basically <laughs> the the three founders Stephen Cohen Alex Karp and uh, Peter Thiel will in perpetuity have essentially control over the company regardless of their actual ownership stake in the company. I mean, even even for Silicon Valley, it's pretty blatant. Or Colorado now because they had moved. But let's put a cork in that particular bottle because we've talked about Palantir enough. I want to get into the cool new fun IPOs, the filings that we actually got yesterday on, we should name it, like like Awesome Monday or like Spectacular Monday when all the numbers came out. Natasha, where are we going to start? Yeah, let's start with Unity because I think whether it Regardless of if it pops or not, it's going to be this huge metaphor again for 2020 because it has to do with gaming platforms. And that brings in Apple. That brings in antitrust. It brings in Epic. So Alex, walk us through the numbers of Unity S1. Okay. So I have to admit, it's, uh, it's bigger and better than I expected is my, my first read of this company. So in 2018, um, Unity had revenues of 380, 381 million, give or take somewhere in there. And then in 2019, that went up to 542 million, rounding a little bit which is just absolutely crazy. That's so much money. And in the first half of this year, its revenues were $351 million. So this company is growing very quickly. It's very, very large. And, and importantly, its losses went up from 2018 to 2019, but they've kind of come down in the more recent period. So we're seeing an improvement in profitability as the company scales, which is what you want to see, which is what Palantir kind of hasn't done as it's gone along. Uh, what's crazy about Unity, uh, Danny, I don't know what happened in your brain when you saw this, but they have like $453 million in cash and like $124 million in debt. So their net cash position is just enormous. And it's going to be a huge IPO because it's valued like, you know, $6 billion or something like that. So it's going to be just this huge cannonball of a, of a splash all over the capital markets, which is a terrible analogy, but now it's on the show. And so I, I was impressed by the scale and also the, uh, the improving profitability. Well, I think, I think the other side with Unity, you know, when we talk about returns, Palantir is very complicated to see who's going to really make money. That is unquestionable in Unity's case. So Sequoia, which actually did the Series A back in all the way back in 2009, 11 years ago, owns 24.1% of the of the company. It was last valued in mid-2019 at $6 billion. So if you just do a little bit of back of the envelope math, assuming the public markets are pretty favorable to the company, I mean, Sequoia is looking at a multi-billion dollar return. Yeah. And uh, what's most interesting about this is actually um, Sequoia has actually bolstered their ownership stake in the company a lot over the years. So they, they only own roughly 11% of their 24% in that early fund. And they actually have used their growth funds, three separate growth fund vehicles over the last decade to continue to buy up shares all the way through the company's existence. And so they, along with uh, Silver Lake, which owns 18%, really are going to come out as huge winners with, with Unity. Well, I mean, that's presuming a good stock market reaction, which given the crap that has had amazing first days recently and certain offerings, which will stay unnamed, Unity should be doing fine. Question then becomes, before we move on, uh, valuation bingo, which is everyone's favorite pastime. Natasha, oh, no. give us a number. I'm going what's last it worth this on, time. What's it worth I'm on day one? I'm going last this time because last time I got screwed by going first. So I'll All go right. last. Uh, 11 billion end of day one. Danny. I think I would be something similar. I'll, I'll play 12 billion. Okay. Natasha. I'll do 9 billion. Oh, the conservative one. Okay. It's important to note, I, I would wrap up here. We obviously think of Unity as a game engine. That's where it started. It actually started as a mobile um, <laughs> game engine to help uh, developers build on both iOS and Android, as well as other operating systems. It's since expanded to PC and other uh, devices. But the, the real magic to Unity long term 
is that it intends to expand its engine to a lot of other different industries. So it, it's making headway into automotive, simulations, movies even. Some movies have actually used it. Its competitor Unreal Engine is actually using The Mandalorian. So I think one thing to pay attention to is, you know, even though mobile gaming might be a little bit more of a mature market than it was a decade ago, Unity itself is trying to expand its TAM over time. I, I would throw in there a bit like how we talk about, you don't see companies like Twilio when you're out there in the world. Unity is a lot like that. People don't walk down the street and talk about Unity, but they often play games on their phones, on their desktops, whatever, that are built by it. So it's definitely behind the scenes powering the world kind of company. And those tend to be, at least in my experience, very profitable. My final take on the company is that, you know, if you weren't taking gaming seriously before, this is a really cool case in how big it is. There was a t- statistic I saw in one of the stories that said developers start like 150,000 new projects each day in 190 cu- countries over Unity. And that was just like crazy to see. Um, and so we think when we think about liquidity, when we think about Sequoia's success, I see it really trickling down to to private startups down the road, which is the question I keep thinking about is, is like, how do these like a million S1s that we saw on Monday impact the YC companies, basically? Well, theoretically, liquidity should trickle down to smaller firms in time as the funds are recycled. Well, talking about gaming, one of the most popular game stores is Steam. And when you free Steam, you create Snowflakes. And moving us along, did you like that? I, I hope everyone enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> so uh, I want to point out that Danny stole my segue. I had my whole segue planned out, but his was actually wait, much better. So please Alex, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so Snowflake, we're going to talk about, we're going to go from gaming. One, one of the patterns you'll see here is that basically everything other than Corsair Gaming, which I don't think we're going to talk about today, was an enterprise company, right? So we, we, we're talking about six IPOs all in the enterprise Gaming, uh, it's not an end, you know, it doesn't target consumers, Unity targets uh, game developers, so it's enterprise B2B. Same with Snowflake. Snowflake's in the data warehouse space. They help you go from the data lake into a process data format. It's only a couple of years old. I want to say it's like uh, 2013, so about seven years into the business. Snowflake is growing massively. So if you're looking at the fiscal year ending January 31st, 2020, Snowflake had revenues of $265 million, and that's up almost 2.75x from the year before, where the revenues were $96 million. At the same time, the net losses soared, so it went from $178 million 2019 to $348 million. So that's a little bit of a downer. But what's crazy is, is if you look at the last quarter, the quarter ending Ju- July 31st, 2020, they actually managed to cut back a little bit on their net loss to $77 million bucks. And so that net loss is 58% of revenue as a comp compared to Palantir. I think Palantir was at what, 155% something like that? It was 97, I think you said? 97 in the most recent, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Down from 150 or so from the year before. And and that net loss for uh, Snowflake, 58%, is actually down from 131% in the previous quarter this year. So Snowflake is obviously massively controlling its expenses. Revenues are going up. I mean, who's actually seen a 3X as a, SaaS companies going on to the public markets. I mean, we never see this, right? So this this is just hugely anticipated by, I think, a lot of investors. The question is, is it SaaS? And I, I got into a debate with some VC folks on Twitter about this because my life is awesome and I'm super exciting. And uh, the general point was that Snowflake is more PaaS or platform as a service versus SaaS. And that sounds like a really small nuance of a difference, but what it kind of boils down to is what kind of gross margins should we expect? And if I recall, Snowflake has had improving gross margins over time. I did all the math kind of throughout the last couple of fiscal years and the most recent quarters. Steady improvement, exactly what you want to see from a company as it matures. Super great to see, solid, just really good. But definitely lower than SaaS in the mid-60s, if I recall, not 75, 82% like you see in SaaS. So 
a small quibble on the economics, but certainly Danny's totally right. A company that's controlling expenses really, really well, scaling super fast, and has brought its net loss down. And now, because of that, is a path to profitability, and it's time to go public. And on top of that, so obviously a huge numbers for, for Snowflake as a company, but for its investors, again, huge win for Sutter Hill, which uh, incubated the company and put $5 million in a Series A back in 2012. They are looking, at least at the previous valuation, at a roughly $2.5 billion stake in the company. The, the director from Sutter Hill, who's on the board, actually owns 10% of Sutter Hill's stake directly. So he's a very happy man. On top of that, there are a bunch of major investors involved. Uh, Sequoia again. So Sequoia Growth came in just in the last two years. So they're not looking at a huge return, about a 4x, uh, given its previous evaluation. But then also Redpoint, Altimeter, and Iconic all coming in with, with huge returns. Redpoint around 12 to 13x, given the last valuation, and the other guys around 8 to 9x. So, I mean, what an amazing story. And I, I think this is going to be among this little cohort of, call it the, the Monday Edgar explosion of IPOs, this is going to be the real winner from this batch. And the last note I'll share is from a Ron Miller story that kind of got reactions on um, people who have been tracking Snowflake. And one analyst made the point that Snowflake relies a lot on the infrastructure of cloud giants like AWS, Microsoft, and Google. But if it goes public and does well, it could one day become a competitor to those two. It already kind of is. And so it's like it's growing and it's not done growing. And that's going to be an exciting public journey to track. But let's move on to the next S1 in our carousel of S1s, Asana. Alex, walk us through the numbers. All right. So Asana is a company that I've been pretty excited about, but let's let's start with some clarifications. We jokingly call it an IPO. It's not. What it is, is a direct listing. So it's going to be a different sort of uh, capital event. It will go public, but it will not raise money along the way. The company took on, I forget if it's 200 or 210 million in debt uh, a little bit ago which is kind of how it's approaching this entire public market thing. So instead of pricing its shares, raising money, and then going public, which is traditional kind of standard, uh, it borrowed a bunch of money that will then, I think, convert later on to shares. But anyways, Asana is a, I don't know, guys, team productivity and to-do management application service for groups of people inside of a company, kind of like monday.com and some other stuff. Famous in the startup world for having Dustin Moskovitz and Justin Rosenstein early Facebookers with a lot of money powering this thing. They're, they were back in the startup game after kind of not needing to do anything ever again. Caught a lot of attention. And for a company that is going to direct list, I was expecting, and I say this with affection because I've talked to the company so much over the years, slightly better numbers on the profitability side, but there is some good growth here. So here is the math. So from the end of its fiscal 2019, which ended in January of that year, no, I'm not going to do it that way. What's a good way to describe fiscal years, guys? But that isn't a thousand words long. I struggled to it say is this is no easy way to do it. What what is the fiscal year for It Asana? ends January thirty one. So oh, do, do, should these. I call that fiscal nineteen or fiscal twenty? Should I just say all the words and be boring? Okay. You can just say fiscal year twenty twenty is mostly the calendar year twenty nineteen. That's gonna be that's gonna be worse, I think. It's it's off by a month. It's 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 Christmas people. That's why they do it this way. This is the the commerce. This is the Walmart yeah, calendar. Yeah, you you and I both know that. But I'm trying to figure out what the best way to convey this. All right, I'll just explain I'll just to the in. masses. All right. So Asana's numbers. Well, they have a fiscal calendar, which is a very annoying thing to talk about. And their year doesn't end December 31st. It ends January 31st. So that means that the year ending January 31, 2019, is mostly 2018, but was actually ending in 2019. There's reasons for this that we're not going to get into. What matters is. 
in that year, they had $76.8 million in revenue, and they roughly doubled in the next 12 months to 142.6, ending at the start of this year. The problem is their losses over the same two time, time frames, these two fiscal years, effectively doubled from $50.9 million to $118.6 million, which is a much higher percent of revenue than we tend to see from SaaS companies of a similar size and a similar growth rate. Niching down to the most recent quarter, which was the quarter ending April 30th, 2020, Asana grew revenue from $28 million in the year ago period to $47.7 million, which is honestly 70% growth which is pretty good. It's definitely above average for a company going public, puts the firm at a run rate of around $200 million a year, but they also lost $35.8 million in the same three-month period, more than twice what it lost in the year-ago period. So good growth, material scale, big run rate, surprisingly large losses with a tiny caveat, which is they now have some debt servicing expenses in there and their share-based compensation costs also rose. So that net loss number is a little bit inflated, but certainly uh, not quite what I expected. Danny, impressions, Natasha, impressions, what do we think about these numbers uh, going through them? It was more impressive when you consider what their customer breakdown looks like. The the factoid being they have 3.2 million free accounts and then it makes all its money off of 75,000 paying customers. That's pretty wild. And so that to me made me more optimistic about it. And it, once I colored in the fact that most of their accounts on their website aren't giving them money anyways. It's a freemium trap. I mean, it's hard to get people who are currently not paying to pay. Slack has been famously good at this, I think, but not every company has the same conversion rate. But again, they still grew 70% year over year to a $200 million run rate. So I don't want to diminish that. Cut them some slack. Da-da, da-da, da-da. Look, they don't have 125 customers, right? I mean, no <laughs> one's going to top Palantir, who sells to like the government and three friends. Uh, I, I, it's three litter agencies, three customers. I think I think my takeaway from this is that it seems to me like a much more long-term sustainable company. I mean, partly I think because of Moskowitz and, and Rosenstein's you know, previous endeavors, which were obviously very profitable. But uh, Moskowitz actually comes out into the IPO owning 35% of the company. Wow. Rosenstein owns 16%. And I, I think the largest, I'm doing this from memory, but I think the largest uh, VC owner was Benchmark owning just uh, above 10% of the shares. I think they did one of the very early rounds. So not a huge win given the previous valuation for, for Benchmark, although, you know, obviously nice, you know, multiple and invested capital. But to me, the, the real magic here is that it didn't raise all that much, right? It raised about 200 million of equity, raised 200 million of debt, probably some sort of SaaS securitization or some sort of um, ARR line, um, which we've been talking about a lot. And so, you know, yes, it's not the largest company. It's not growing the fastest. The losses aren't the best. But what's amazing is I don't think I've ever seen a company recently in which the founders just outright own a majority of the shares. And I, I don't know if they've uh, invested personally. We don't kind of have all those pieces of information in front of us. But it is extremely rare for a company that's 10, 12 years old to have founders who actually own a majority outright of the shares. Yeah, one thing I'll throw in there, I, I read a headline, so I forget if this is true, but I think Dustin Moskowitz may have been behind some of the capital they borrowed, which would double him down again and again into the business. Here's why Asana matters. All that was numbers and kind of inside baseball for us financial dorks. If you're just listening to this and you want to know why you need to give a shit, here's why. Because they raised debt and then pursued a direct listing, this is a possible template for future, not IPOs, future public offerings. And if this goes well for Asana, we may see a lot of other companies follow suit because people are very peeved at the IPO pricing process that most companies go through today. Direct listings get around that. How do you raise capital? Well, maybe you just raise it as convertible debt beforehand. So it's a test. And that's the cool thing here. I, my first ever interview at Disrupt was Justin Rosenstein. So like, there's a special place in my heart for this company. But that's the, that's the real thing from the market's perspective that matters. 
I'll add too that Monday.com, which is probably its closest competitor, is also kind of gearing up for IPOs, even though like who isn't at this point. So um, it'll be interesting to track Monday.com too. Yeah, they were over 130 million ARR earlier this year when they came on um, this show, actually. So yeah, Danny? I was going to say, I, I think the when you look at Snowflake, Snowflake is definitely my winner of the set of like, which one is going to debut the most on the IPOs. Asana is definitely my most likely to be acquired before the IPO actually hits, <laughs> uh, or I should say direct listing actually hits award, because I think the price point, decent numbers, I can imagine a couple of different buyers in the tech space that might want to buy it out to compete with Microsoft Planner. All right. So stop jinxing my direct listing gambit here because i'm really excited about this we have a couple of more we're going to be brief now first of J jfrog i think is cool natasha you don't think it's cool i want to know your beef with jfrog it sounds like the service you use when you go to the library and you need to look up the use the dewey decimal system and like find a book what's wrong with that everyone loves the dewey <laughs> decimal system i love I it like a rap name <laughs> that's, that's somehow dumber i don't know oh. <laughs> JFrog is cool as a cool Tell product and uh, it's growing quickly, which matters to me from 63.5 million revenue in 2018 to, uh, I think it's 104.7 in 2019. It grew about 46% in its most recent quarter. And critically, it actually made money. It's profitable on a gap basis, which is something we almost never say on this podcast in the startup world on TechCrunch.com. Like it's, it's, it's got 80% plus gross margins. It's, it's gorgeous. It's a great business. Now, to be clear, I know nothing about what it actually does, which is like a developer toolkit, service platform, code delivery thing, but I like it. The uh, DevOps lifecycle uh, product. There and um, the, the real magic, though, is uh, it's a huge win for the Israeli ecosystem. The biggest uh, VC investors, Gemini, Israel Ventures, and uh, Scale and Sapphire both did uh, later stage rounds, along with a couple of others. So um, to me, it's like, uh, look, profitability, this is what's the difference between Silicon Valley and the rest of the world is in Silicon Valley, people just find more ways to lose money faster. You go overseas a little bit and suddenly, boom, you see a profitable company, 80% gross margins. So you can do it. That's my kind of magic. Okay, this is the most likely to be profitable company. That's my bet. So, so I love that you're like, guys, Snowflake, which loses the most money, is the best. And then you're like, on the next thing, you're like, I love JFrog, it makes money. I, 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 squ- I struggle to square those two, those two things, Danny. <laughs> I'm not going to answer the question. I'm just going to point it out. All right. All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap with Sumo Logic, a company that's not AppSumo, which is what I kept writing down on my post when I was covering it because I'm an idiot. Sumo Logic filed, I think it was early Monday morning. So when I was getting my day started, I was like, oh my gosh, we have an S1 to start the week. How exciting. One new IPO for the week. And then, of course, you know, the later deluge happened really briefly. 50% revenue growth in its last year, in its most recent quarter, about 45% growth, a little bit above average for public SaaS companies, but it's younger, so you kind of expect that. Blended gross margins of about 69%, which was down a little bit, which is not super amazing. It raised a little over 300 million above private, so with a lot of money riding on its success. Uh, it's going to be a smaller IPO in our kind of radar, but it's certainly one to keep an eye on. If you'd like, we'll be covering the pricing and the debut. But that, that ladies and gentlemen, I believe is... The end of the IPO uh, download. I think that's all of them. How do we feel right now? I feel 10 out of 10 because we didn't talk about SPACs and I am so tired of talking about SPACs. You said the word. There were multiple SPACs that were announced today and yesterday that we didn't even talk about, including uh, one that just came out an hour ago uh, when we're recording here, 
um, that one of the senior leaders of BlackBerry is getting in on this back game. Oh, um, I haven't heard and, that word uh, in so long. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it looks like uh, literally Palantir just filed like two minutes ago. Great. So <laughs> as, we're, as we're recording. As we're fin- recording, uh, you know, actual docs. So uh, I guess we can throw away our leaked copies now. But uh, a lot of IPOs coming. And I imagine, I mean, just given the, the timing, I think we're going to have a lot more. I mean, I, I think, you know, whether it's from the SPAC side, the direct listing side or the IPO side, and as we talked about on the, the actual equity episode last uh, Friday, you know, everyone's looking for liquidity. Everyone's going public. It's amazing. It's a revolution. You know, the, the magic of the last couple of years has been don't go pri- uh, public, you know, stay private as long as possible. Now everyone's going the other direction. It just, yeah. You- it feels like lemons. The question is in a year when there is a pandemic, a local, if not global recession and an election, is this the year to finally find the IPO button? We shall see, ladies and gentlemen, but expect a lot more S1s, as Danny said, and expect more of us on Friday morning. No, I'm a big liar. Expect more of us tomorrow afternoon when we talk about why comedy startups, and then Friday morning, and then Monday, because equity never sleeps. Good night.